Revelation chapter 1. And while we're on Christmas, don't forget our Christmas party coming up that Don announced. And we want everyone to be there. And if you have a problem financially at this time because of uh, the bad economy, make sure that you let one of us know and we'll make sure you get there. Okay, Revelation chapter 1. Now, Revelation opens up with a prologue. Uh, just as the Gospel of John has a prologue, so Revelation has a prologue. And when, that, when you talk about a prologue, you're talking about the equivalency of a preface in a book or a foreword in a book. And when you buy a new book and you look at the preface and you look at the foreword, it gives you some, limit, some preliminary information about that book and often it introduces you to the theme. Well, the prologue in Revelation does the same thing. So let's just hop in and, and see what it reveals to us. So let's read verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Some translations say which soon must come to pass. And he sent and signified it, that revelation, by his angel to his servant, John. Now, the first thing you notice is the word revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In uh, the Greek text, the word revelation is the first word in the sentence, and there is no definite article. There's no the. So it just says revelation, or a revelation. Now, when you think of this word revelation, this reveals something to us uh, about the nature of this book. Uh, a revelation, the word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which uh, says a couple things to it. First of all, if you look the word up in a dictionary, uh, the word revelation or apocalypsis, uh, it means an unveiling or a disclosure of something that has been hidden or concealed and inaccessible through ordinary means. So this book is going to reveal some things to us that are that's, that's hidden or concealed. It's a disclosure. Uh, an unveiling. We have unveilings of statues and pieces of art uh, a couple times a year. You go to Dallas and they'll unveil some big statue or another big ceremony. And the audience is seeing it for the first time. So we're going to be uh, privy to information that was written here uh, for the first time. But Revelation, or Apocalypsis, also uh, describes the kind of book this is. This is apocalyptic literature. And you know, we have all kinds of literature, all kinds of genres. We have poetry, we have prophecy, we have prose, we have wisdom literature, we have epic literature, we have narratives and stories in the Bible. Well, this is a different kind of literature altogether. This is called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature uses uh, symbols. It has a cert certain kind of features to it. And the first feature is that it, that it uh, includes symbols uh, in the way of uh, numbers and words uh, as code. It uses language in, in a coded fashion. Numbers and symbols as codes. And the numbers that are included in Revelation that are coded 
are 7, 12, 666, 1,000, 144,000, 10,000 times 10,000. These are numbers that you do not take literally. They are symbols, and they have symbolic meaning. And in fact, if you look at verse 4, you see the first one of those numbers. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace and peace be to you, who is and was and is to come from the seven spirits. What in the world does that mean? Seven spirits. That seven must mean something that's a little different than normal. Who are before his throne. Now some of the language that he uses, which is symbolic, are words like beast. Lampstands, stars, scarlet woman, various colored horses. He sees a white horse in his vision. Uh, not literally, he sees the horse, but it doesn't mean that one day there's going to be a horse coming down from heaven. It talks about Christ coming on a white charger. You think he's going to come on a white charger? You ever see one of those things happen? What in the world does that mean? Do you know that Muhammad supposedly went to heaven on a white charger? He ascended into heaven on a white charger. There's all kinds of symbolic language that means something. Okay? It's coded. Okay? Now, these numbers and these words are not to be taken literally. Now, let me ask you something. If I were in my class, I'd say this. Why would somebody write cryptically? Why would somebody write a letter to a group of churches in code? Why would you write it cryptically? You know, think about World War II. Uh, why did uh, the Germans send messages to each other in code? Why did we send messages to each other in code? In crypt. Because we knew that if that message fell into the hands, the wrong hands, they wouldn't know what it meant. John's doing the same thing. He's writing a letter in code with symbolic meaning so that if it falls into the hands of the wrong people, they'll have no idea what it means. But when it reaches the hands of the right people, they will understand what it means. And that's why he says, he that has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So when we talk about apocalyptic literature, it's using symbols, words and numbers in a coded fashion. But there's a second thing about apocalyptic literature, all apocalyptic literature. And that is, it speaks of cataclysmic events. Uh, the only other book that's apocalyptic in the entire Bible is portions of Daniel. It speaks about cataclysmic events. Nations rising and falling and fire coming down from heaven and judgments and all these kinds of things. Revelation does the same thing. But when it talks about these cataclysmic events, it's talking about events that start or take place in time. In time. They take place in the course of history. But these events originate from outer space. Think about that. The events take place in history, in time and space. 
Judgments fall upon the earth. Fire comes down upon the earth. But these events, these disasters, originate in outer space. And so, Revelation tells us about how God, how heaven breaks into time and space and judgments occur. And so, in a sense, what John is doing, this is why it's a revelation. He's pulling back the veil of heaven. And he shows us two things. What's happening on earth? A lot of things are happening on earth in Revelation. And then he pulls back the veil of heaven and he reveals the which is hidden and concealed to the average eye. And he shows us what's going on in heaven during that same period of time. And suddenly we realize, even though it looks like things are disastrous on earth, when the veil from heaven is pulled back, we see that God is involved in this whole process. And his hand is reaching down here, and he is, in a sense, moving history along. So, you need to understand the nature of what we're going to be seeing. Very symbolic and God breaking into time. Now, whose revelation is it? Look what it says in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Messiah. Now, I need to ask you another question. This is Jesus' revelation. At the time this is written, where is Jesus? Okay, right. He's in heaven, and he's at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he's ruling as a king, isn't he? He's seated on the throne... At the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's God's right hand man. And he's ruling. He's ruling over the earth. In fact, when Jesus was resurrected, he said, All authority has been given to me where? In heaven and on earth. He's ruling the whole thing. But you don't realize he's ruling the whole thing. That he's really in charge. He is a king. But he's a king in exile. Think about that. Jesus is in heaven, he's a king, but he's a king in exile who claims control of the whole earth. And on this earth he has a small following who are giving their allegiance to King Jesus. And because they're giving their allegiance to King Jesus, rather than the Roman emperor, Because they're giving their allegiance to the kingdom of God, the government of God, and not the government and the empire of Rome, they're suffering for it. So they said, we're giving our allegiance to King Jesus. And they said, what are you talking about King Jesus? They said, oh, he's a king. Where is he? Oh, he's up in heaven. Oh. He's a king in exile. One day he's coming back. And that message must have sounded ridiculous. The only thing I can liken it to, for those of you who remember these events, remember when the Shaw of Iran fell? Well, you remember that, don't you? Shaw of Iran was sort of a puppet of the CIA. He did our bidding. But the Ayatollah Khomeini claimed to be the ruler of Iran, but guess what? He was where he was. He was a ruler in exile. He was in France. And although the Shah thought he ruled Iran, there was a ruler in exile just waiting to march right in and take over the whole country. 
And the Ayatollah Khomeini would send messages to his followers. He had pockets of followers in Iran just waiting for him to return. And he would send coded messages. If those messages fell into the wrong hands, the people wouldn't know what he was talking about. But his followers knew what, it was, what he was talking about. And at a certain point, guess what? Just like that, they resisted. He came back in triumph and took over country of Iran. Now I'm talking here about a man who's pretty evil, but that's the concept of a king in exile. So whose revelation is it? It's Jesus. Where is Jesus? In heaven. He's ruling the world, but he's a king in exile, and one day he's coming back. Now look at the origination of this message. It's the revelation of Jesus the Messiah, which, look at this, God gave him. Notice that this revelation Starts with God. God the Father. Jesus is ruling under the authority of God. He's doing God's bidding. Okay? Now, for what causes does he give this revelation? Look what it says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his servants, plural, that's his followers on earth, things which must shortly take place, or soon must come to pass. Now, the purpose of the revelation is what? To show things that are going to happen soon. It's going to tell about events that are going to happen very soon. And this is where the problem takes place. Here's the problem with the book of Revelation. It says... Notice what it says. Gave to show his servants the things that must take place at least 2,000 years later. Is that what it says? Must shortly come to pass. Hey, do you see the word must in there? That must, by necessity, come to pass very soon. You see the problem with Revelation? If this is describing the rapture of the church, if this is describing the second coming, then John's been off by at least 2,000 years. It is Revelation, isn't it? In fact, I'd say the Father was off by at least 2,000 years, and the Son was off by at least 2,000 years. These are things which must what? Who's he showing these to? His servants. Which servants? I guess the ones that John's writing to. The seven churches. These are things that are going to happen in their lifetime. So, if you believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible and inspired, and it says, must shortly come to pass, and you think those things are the second coming and the rapture and all those other things, then John was wrong. You got yourself a problem. So, this has led people to come up with all kinds of strange interpretations of these texts. Okay? And this is where all of our theories come in. And in order to understand what people do with this text, you need to understand there are basically three ways that people interpret the book of Revelation. And the first method of interpretation is known as the preterist view. And some of you have heard that, the preterist view. 
the preterist view states that all these things that John Wright did come to pass very shortly after he wrote this book. And they say all the things in the book of Revelation took place prior to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD. That's called the preterist view. Now, there's a problem with that view. And here's the problem. If all these things took place prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, then John would have had to write this thing somewhere around 65, 67 AD. Because he's talking about things that are what? In the short future. So if they happened by 70, he had to write by, say, 66, 67. Well, there's a problem with that. Irenaeus, who is John's disciple, the Apostle John's disciple, in his writing, tell us that John penned the book of Revelation at the end of Emperor Domitian's reign. Emperor Domitian was the emperor of the Roman Empire from 81 AD to 96 AD. That's the Apostle John's disciple saying that. He said, my mentor, John, wrote this at the end of Domitian's reign. So we place the Revelation at 95 AD. So the preterist view cannot stand the test of time. So that brings us to a second way people interpret the scriptures, and this is called the spiritual view. And this view states, you don't have to take any of this stuff literally, it's all symbolic, and what it symbolizes is good defeats evil. In the end, good defeats evil. So all these pictures here, you see a beast, you see a lamb, you see they're fighting, one represents good, one represents evil, and good eventually triumphs over evil. And there is paradise on earth. Well, what's the problem with this view? Same issue. He says these are about events that must what? Shortly come to pass. Has evil been triumphed? Have we triumphed over evil in this world? It's still around. See? So uh, this symbolic view or the spiritualist view uh, doesn't really seem to answer the question. Uh, and it says these events must take place. Events. The spiritualist view says these are not really events. These are just represent good and evil. No, there are symbols in here, but they represent events, and they represent people, and they represent places. So the spiritualist view doesn't work. So that leads us to the final view, which most in this room held, and I feel that I've held it all my adult life, uh, and that's the futurist view. But I've had to change my position on this. And I want to give you a fourth view, one that's not in textbook. The street wouldn't do something like that, would it? <laughs> no, we'd never come up with some weird idea. Okay, let me tell you what the futurist view is. Okay? The futurist view says that in chapter 4, in verse 1, the church is raptured out of here. And everything from chapter 4 to chapter 22 in Revelation deals with events that take place after the rapture. Was the rapture happened yet? No. So, that makes 82% of the book of Revelation 
irrelevant to the churches at John's time. What would be relevant for John's churches? Seven churches. Chapters 1, 2, and 3. What would not apply to them? They wouldn't have anything to do with them. The other 82%. Chapters 4 through 22. Now, guess what? Has the rapture occurred yet? No. So, that would mean also that chapters 4 through 22 would have no relevance for us. Because if we're out of here with the rapture, like it says, and everything from chapter 4 onward talks about things that happened during the tribulation, we're not even going to be here. Then it really has no relevance for us. What are we doing? Wasting our time reading this thing? So what we're going to do is we're going to take a different view. Okay? Here's how we're going to approach the book of Revelation. We're going to say that this book made sense and applied to John's audience, John's readers. It was written in 95 AD, and the events that he describes in this entire book are events that are going to take place shortly. Because that's what he said. Why would you think something other way? So, we're going to call this the historical critical view. Okay? The historical critical view. And so what we're going to try to do is interpret the passage in light of what it meant to John's original audience. What did John intend to tell his audience? And then we're going to apply the principles to our situation. Because in many ways, we're, we are very similar situation to John's audience. Okay? So, that's what we're going to try to do. Now, let's finish reading this verse. To show his servants, plural, that's people in those churches that he's writing to, the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and he signified that revelation by an angel to his servant, singular, John. So now we see five levels. The revelation originates through, from, comes from God the Father, through the Son, Jesus, through an angel, down to John, and down to the seven churches of servants. Now notice John calls himself a servant. See that? John calls himself a servant, and the message is sent to servants. John doesn't put himself any higher than any of the people that he's writing to. He himself is privy to this revelation. He's right on the same scale with them. Now look what he says in verse 2. Who bore witness, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all the things that he what? Saw. So that means that this revelation has come to John by way of a vision. This is something that he sees in his mind's eye. Okay? Uh... So, the revelation is a vision. Now, what did John see in this vision? Did John see the end of the world? The way we think of the end of the world? Did John see the end of the world the way we think of the end of the world? Or did he see what? Things that must shortly come to pass. See, these are the kinds of questions you need to ask. You can't just jump over all these verses and get to the good stuff. You know why? Because a prologue introduces you to the rest of the book. And we're in the prologue. And if you miss what this prologue says, and you jump over words and phrases and sentences, you're going to 
twist the scriptures and you're going to come up with the weirdest theories in the world. I had a guy that just emailed me, knowing that I was going to deal with Revelation, and asked me if this guy George Soros, the billionaire, is the Antichrist. <laughs> and this book has nothing to do with George Soros. <laughs> See, when you take a pure futurist, you, you'll think, Henry Kissinger's the Antichrist? Maybe Obama's the Antichrist. How about Putin? Tell me how this gets... I mean, it's, it's out of hand. So John saw something, he says at the end of the... Look, to all the things that he saw, all the things that he saw, look, all the things that he saw, do you see that at the end of verse 2? All the things that he saw. Look up in verse 1. The things which must shortly come to pass. Do you see that? Things that must shortly come to pass. Look at the end of verse 2. All the things that he saw. Do you think those things are the same things? So, my question is, did John see the end of the world as we think of the end of the world? And I think the answer is no. But you know what he saw? He saw that the end, of the, that the end what I'm going to call the end, has already arrived on earth in some sense. The end has already begun. Remember, Jesus came and he preached, John the Baptist did it, and Jesus came and he preached, he said, Behold, the kingdom of God is what? It's at hand? Boy, I don't think the kingdom of God's come on earth yet, has it? Jesus must have missed it by 2,000 years. Well, he misses a lot. Kingdom of God is at hand. Then what happened to Jesus? He preached that message. Did they accept it? No, they crucified him, didn't they? The Roman government put him to death, and the Jews that didn't believe the kingdom of God is at hand put him to death. And then what did God do? Raised him from the dead. Now watch this. With the resurrection of Jesus, the end begins. The end has already begun with the resurrection of Jesus. Remember what Paul says? He says, talks about the end times. He says, and the last enemy that shall be conquered is what? Death. Remember when he says that? The last enemy that shall be conquered is death. Did Jesus conquer death? Yes, Jesus did conquer death. One person has conquered death. Have every, has everyone conquered death? No, but one person's conquered death, and guess what? Therefore, the end has already begun. If one person's conquered death, it's begun. It's not here totally, but it's begun. So where is Jesus right now? He's the right hand of the Father. He's the king in exile. But at the time of John's writing, who's running the world? Yes, it's Caesar, and it's Domitian, Emperor Domitian, who's ruling in 95 AD. He is the ruler of the world. But Jesus is the king in exile. But Domitian is the ruler of the world. He is identified as a beast. And he's a beast who's about to unleash war upon the servants of God. Now, some people think he's talking about Nero, but Nero, he wasn't the emperor at this time when this was written. That fits in with the preterist view. This is the emperor Domitian, and he's a beast. A beast who's ready to pounce down and devour the Christians. And as a result, many Christians are going to be martyred in this book because these are the things that are going to soon happen, and many others are going to suffer 
for their faith and their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And John is going to write here in this revelation that, uh, hey, that's been conquered by Jesus, and guess what? You'll conquer it too. If the mission puts you to death, don't worry. God will raise you from the dead. Too. Uh, and he has to write this to these seven churches because many people right now are ready to cave in and change their allegiance from King Jesus to the Roman Empire. And so John is writing this in a sense as a warning, and he says, Be faithful to him that overcomes, to him that overcomes, to him that endures, to him that puts up with the suffering. Even if you die in the faith, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. You're going to be given to use the kingdom of God. And that's what he's writing about. Now look what else he says in verse 2. He says, John bore witness, and look what he calls this, this revelation that he received. He calls it the Word of God. Because it comes from God. He's the originator. And he bears witness to the testimony of Jesus Messiah. It comes through Jesus. And therefore, this word that John is going to deliver is a very authoritative word. And look what he says in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear these words. Do you see that? These words are written, and they are going to be delivered to these seven churches, and maybe other churches as well, we don't know. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. And, when this letter is delivered to the church, it will have to be read out loud. People didn't have Bibles in those days, like you do. When they got a word, the word came through a prophet of God. Often the prophet of God got a vision. And then he wrote it down. We see that in the Old Testament. And then it was read out loud to the people. It had to be read out loud because 90% of the people were illiterate. They couldn't read. What like you take the letter today and pass it over to Jane next day and she'll pass it over to Sam the next day and we'll all read it within the course of a year. Couldn't read it. So the letter was delivered. And when it was delivered, someone had to read it. So blessed is he who reads. And the person who reads the letter was called in the early church a lector. A lector. From which we get our word lectern. You ever been in many churches? They have two pulpits. You ever wonder why? One's the preaching pulpit. The other's the reading pulpit. It's for the public reading of the word. And the person who reads it is a lector, and some denominations actually have books of the scriptures that would be read every week, and they're called lectionaries. You wonder why they do all those crazy things. Not the way we do it. Well, this is the biblical basis for why they do what they do. You might not like the way they do it, but that's why they do it. And so they actually even have, some of them have an office of lector, or public reader of scriptures. Now remember, the early this means that this was going to be read during the worship service. Now you know from our other sessions that when the early church met, it met for a meal, didn't it? And it had a meal, and that lasted an hour and a half, and then it had a section called the symposium, and that's where people sang, and they preached, and they had their gifts of the Spirit, and they did their giving. It would have been during that second part of the worship service, after the meal's over, that someone would say, and we have a letter today from the Apostle John. 
And they turned to a person who was literate and could read, and that person would read the letter to the audience. Blessed is the person who reads. That person's blessed, and he has to read it accurately. He can't add to it, can't take away from it. What John says at the end of the book. And if he reads it accurately and delivers it to God's people in an authoritative way, that person will be blessed. And then, blessed are those, in verse 3, who hear the words and what? Keep those things. Keep those things which are written in it. So, the person who will be blessed then will be also be the person who heeds those warnings. Not enough to hear, you have to heed. John's giving a bunch of warnings here. What's going to happen? So there's going to be persecution. Here's how you should act. Heed. And if the person heeds, guess what? That person's blessed. Notice it's called, blessed are those who read and those who heed or hear the words of this, what? Prophecy. You see, it's a prophecy. So this is a prophecy. It means it deals with future things. But prophecy, in this case, is not given to satisfy our curiosity whether so-and-so is the Antichrist. And that's what all the prophecy books are about. They're trying to prick your curiosity and tell you things that are sensational. This isn't given to satisfy our curiosity. This is given to motivate us to action. You see that? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in that prophecy. Why? What's the reason that you have to do that? Look what it says right at the end of verse 3. For the time is 2,000 years away, right? No. For the time is near. To fail to heed the words of this prophecy will result in your disaster. You better heed them. The time's wrong. It's going to happen before you realize it. And to heed the word of prophecy will lead to your blessing. So hold fast to the truth. Don't switch your allegiance from Jesus to the mission. You might suffer and you might die, but guess what? You'll be blessed. For you will inherit the kingdom of God. You will be resurrected. Resurrected. So, this message applies. So when you take it from a historical critical approach, we can see how this message applies directly to that church and their circumstances. But we can see the analogy for our times too, can't we? We can see how this prophecy will help us to live under similar circumstances. So this revelation does two things for us. It shows us how to respond. It's going to show us how to respond to our government. And by the way, this isn't written to Christians in America, is it? This doesn't only apply to Christians in America, but it does apply to us. But not, it's not limited to us. It will show us how we are to live as citizens in the kingdom of God and how we're to resist our government when it doesn't fall in line with the principles. It will show people in Egypt that they're Christians how to live for the kingdom of God and how to resist their government when they don't follow the principles that are laid out in this book. So it's going to give us some 
a human perspective on what we're to do. But the second thing that's going to do is it pulls back the veil for us. Not only for these churches, but for our church as well. It pulls back the veil from heaven. And when it looks like everything's going crazy here on earth, and we don't know whether we should cave in or not, the veil's pulled back and we see what God's doing in heaven. The same time that the things are happening on earth. And we realize that God is working these things out. And that he is going to break into time. And he is going to move history the way he wants to move history. And so we're going to get a divine perspective. So that's the prologue of Revelation. And this is so important that we get this. Because without this, the rest of the book becomes nonsense. to the making sense out. So the next time we'll finish out the introduction. And we'll go through up to chapter 2 and look into the church in Ephesus. Let's stop right there. Father, I thank you for your word. Help us to see how important it is to, uh, to read every document, whether it's a constitution of the United States, whether it's a declaration of independence, whether it's a contract that was written for a piece of property 50 years ago, or whether it's the scriptures, how important it is for us to read it in its historical content. Help us to discover the author's intent and what it meant to the author when he wrote it and what it meant for the people to whom he wrote it. And then, Lord, we can take those principles and apply them to our lives. In Christ's name we pray.